Tēnā koutou, I'm Karen Hay. In 2015, the New Zealand Society of Authors commissioned the most recent interviews in its 30-year oral history project. It's these authors who will be sharing their experiences in the third season of the NZSA Oral History Podcast. Tessa Duda has published fiction and non-fiction for children and adults both in New Zealand and overseas. Tessa has also dedicated herself to the promotion of writing and writers through involvement in the New Zealand Society of Authors and in the Storylines Children's Literature Charitable Trust. Tessa's best-known work is the Alex Quartet. Alex is a young female competitive swimmer who struggles to succeed in swimming, school, love and life. The first book was adapted into a movie in 1993. Tessa herself was a competitive swimmer as a young woman, and in 2015, she and Deborah Shepherd discussed how Tessa moved away from the athlete's life into the writer's one, initially as a journalist at the Auckland Star. Things would have been different if I'd gone to university and then did my OE, um, and then started a journalism career. But against that, I, I would say that there was a very strong ethos in the Auckland Star. Yes, they did take women, as cadets, but no, they did not like university graduates. They liked people to come in fresh and experience the university of life, you know, mm -hmm. that, that old-fashioned journalism. And there were no courses available at that time, none mm -hmm. at all. No, none of the sort of communications, media courses that universities do now. So that I was very strongly influenced by both my parents, who I think didn't really think of me having a career as such. Our generation was so firmly, f the, the goal was to get married by the time you were 23. Yeah. That was the average. And if it was after that, then you were in danger of being on the shelf. Um, so really, I don't think my parents sort of broadened my outlook and think, well, okay, you're going to journalism or you're going to university, whatever. But what are you going to be doing when you're 40? Because their expectation was that I would just be a housewife and be supporting a husband and, and a family. Uh, and coupled with the very strong feeling from the star that they didn't like university graduates, in fact there was one in there, and that was Robin Dudding, before right. he became the editor of Islands. Islands. And he got a bit of ragging from the other journalists, the more traditionally trained ones, um, you know, that he was a, an intellectual in a way that they weren't. Um, so those those were the influences I think mm. which which um, helped to help me to make that decision. So I did go into the Star and had those three or four years as a journalist. What did that teach you? The training was ad hoc. Um, I'm very good at f tracking people down because that's mm. what we did. We were taught how to persevere with if we needed to find somebody, how to do it. All the techniques that were available to us, of course, they're thousand times different now but um, how to work under pressure yes. because we had a deadline of mm -hmm. 10 to 10 and if our copy was not with the editors by 10 to 10 forget it it was it was gone it was of no use so working under pressure and I took over from Val Blomfield as a swimming reporter and I'd go to a carnival we call them then a swim meeting and I would come home at 10 o'clock and I would still be writing my copy at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> to be handed in at eight Yes, I'm Long very hours. good at focusing on, on something which has to be done. So I do like deadlines. 
Yes. Because it gives you a sense of um, purpose urgency. and structure and urgency. And um, practically every literary contract I've had, I've asked for a deadline so that I've had something to work towards. Yeah, I think by being a journalist, you learn how to be curious. I think that's the main thing. Mm -hmm. You have to be. You have to ask questions. And sometimes I hear, I, I listen to the um, interviews that they're doing, and I think, ask this question. Please <laughs> ask them this question. And they don't. It seems to me that, that you've... Kim Hill, of course, obviously does. She always asks a question that sort of leads them on to the next person. But I think... Um, it's a real skill. It's a real it? skill, but it also requires a certain sort of mind. And I think one of the things that I tell would-be writers, one of the, f the best attributes they need to have is curiosity. And Margaret Mahi used to say exactly the same mm -hmm. thing. She was curious about everything. And I think I am too, because <laughs> when I was at university in my first year, um, the name of Henry Miller came up. Tropic of Cancer. Now, in those days, that book was kept under lock and key at the university. The name was mentioned in passing, uh, Henry Miller, Tropic of Cancer, and that it was a banned book. So being me, I went to the university, the library, and said, I'd like to read this book. And so they, you had to ask for it, and they would give it to you. What happened then was that I put it beside my bed in all innocence and was... Uh, made to sit down by my parents who had both read it and they were horrified absolutely horrified and they said where did you get this book from and I said well I was curious to know what was in it what made it so bad that of course nowadays it's quite lame really yeah. quite bland so I got a small lecture from dad about how within marriage everything was allowable outside marriage things were not you know they were quite stuck quite yeah. prim in this way but yeah. that was typical of the mm, time of course but um, <laughs> I think the very fact that I seem to be the only student, apparently, who went and asked for the book after, um, after it being mentioned uh, as a banned book. In your collection, Is She mm -hmm. Still Alive? Mm -hmm. the, the one you wrote, and I have chosen you, where the, where the student oh, yes, yes. is writing to the writer. Mm -hmm. And I quite liked what you said there about sort of tips on, on writing. Or, mm -hmm. um, you said, you th I think what people want now from printed material is facts, background, history, analysis, commentary, words, ideas, dialogue, debate. And then mm. you talked about beginnings oh and not getting anxious about <laughs> getting that first sentence, how you can come back to that afterwards. Mm. But would you say that are those things that you learnt through journalism or just th uh, what you've acquired along the way? I would have got this at university, but I think at, in journalism in Auckland at the time, there were some really fine journalists, yes. um, old school journalists who were really serious about their job. I'm not saying they don't still exist. I mean, obviously they do. But I was lucky enough to sort of rub, rub alongside these people. Um, Bob Gilmore was one. Um, he was the New Zealand correspondent for Time at the, uh, at simultaneously. Um, the medical reporter there was Adrian Sturman. Now, my father knew Adrian quite well, and he, he, he talked a lot with Adrian about, about what he was doing, and he knew that he could trust him entirely, that he didn't want something to be printed. Well, then he knew he could trust him not to. Uh, Noel Holmes was another one. These, these were all 
outstanding journalists of their time, and I think possibly just oh Pat Booth, of course, was mm. there particularly the one. Um, no women among that lot. Mm. Um, but I think that these were people who were specialists in their field, and so they they could um, they could give a lot of background and, mm. and knew what they really knew what they were talking about. And I think that's probably what has perhaps informed me. Yes, because I mean I love books like um, well I'm just reading Simon Winchester at the moment his book on the Pacific, and it's and it's so wide ranging. You mm -hmm. just feel there's and that's in a lesser way what I've tried to do with Sarah Matthew. Um, and I mean, you're an historian, you know that really there's so many influences mm -hmm. that you can brought to bear. So mm -hmm. I, I, I've always tried to think of what the untold stories are around mm -hmm. things and the peripheral ideas and sort of join up the dots. I think yeah. I'm quite good at joining up the dots. Yeah. And maybe had I done other things and done that degree and then gone on and done a master's because I was there at the same time as, say, people like Max Cryer, and I don't think there would have been any pressure in those days to go on and do a PhD because that was almost unheard of mm. in academia, I think, in those days. Mm. You had to be super bright, mm. um, whereas now it seems to me that PhDs are, well, just thinking of, of my daughter, I mean, yeah. she wouldn't describe herself as being overly bright, um, not in the academic sense, but she's a worker. And she's passionate about her yes, work, exactly. and and the PhD seems to me to be something which is attainable if 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 you know you put those fourteen years of hard work yes, into it. Um, but in my day, a PhD was you know absolutely out of reach, which is an awful shame. Do you do you think you should have regrets about the path you? Oh no, what, I don't. You're outstanding for your time period. Yeah, I don't have done. real regrets. I just I'm a bit wistful. That's all. Yeah. Um, no, no, I'm I'm not in any sense sort of um, well bitter is a very strong word but no I don't the regrets are not wistful is a they're nice not powerful word. yeah wistful wistful yes I'm a little wistful I mean but I suppose most people think like that that there there's a path they could have chosen which, mm. which might have been different but no I'm pretty happy with really the way things have gone so you were married in Auckland in 1964 yes, yes. and then did you move to London at that point? How did we it left three weeks later. Yes. Went straight back to London where my new husband John had a job as civil engineer with Sir Alexander Gibb and Partners, which is a very large civil engineering company in England. Uh, we worked in London, he worked in London for two years. Based he, in London? Yes, he had previously been with that company in Nigeria. Uh, so we had those two years in London, very happy years. This was, of course, swinging London, and I was working on the Daily Express. How did you get that job? Um, a string was pulled on my behalf. Nice. <laughs> because we found a flat in Notting Hill um, belonging to the Queen's dermatologist. And the Queen's dermatologist was an absolutely wonderful man who, he and his wife, we had the top floor of their house in Notting Hill. And he knew Sir Max Aiken, and Sir Max Aiken was the son of Lord Beaverbrook. Mm -hmm. So when he knew that I was jobless, he said, oh, I'll have a word to Max. So he had a word to Max, and I was offered a job. <laughs> so that's the way it worked in those days. So um, what did I mean, the job involved? Oh, I was taken on as a features writer. Mm -hmm. And I, it, wasn't, it wasn't a happy year in a way, because 
John was enjoying his job. Um, we wanted to have a social life, you know, we, the whole expatriate community there. We were wanting to travel a bit to Europe. Um, I think I lacked the necessary dedication, really, to a career as such. Because I was newly married, I knew that we were going to have children sometime in the near future. Mm. Interestingly enough, two of the people I remember in the, um, in the features room were Osbert Lancaster, who um, a great cartoonist who sort of wandered into the office every, about midday every day. And the other one was Anne Leslie, who later became Dame Anne Leslie and one of the most um, distinguished careers of, uh, journalists of her group. Uh, she was then in her late 20s and writing the most brilliant uh, profiles of film stars and, and politicians. She was wonderful. Um, I didn't ever get close to her, but I was... Oh, another one was a novelist called Jane Gaskell, who um, spent most of her time writing her novels, I think, while, while she was waiting for it to be given a job. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you about the important work NZSA does for all New Zealand writers through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards, mentorships and advisory and consultancy services. NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers. It lobbies for fair reward for your work and for the protection of your copyright. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about joining. After travelling and working as a journalist in England and Pakistan, Tessa Duda and her family returned to New Zealand in the early 1970s. By this time, three of her four daughters had been born, and she talked to Deborah about developing into a mother and into a novelist. I learnt to care for small children. I'd had no experience in my family much. I didn't have much contact with my brother, who was seven years younger. I, I don't quite know why, but I didn't. Um, yes, I did take to motherhood. I mean, when we came back to New Zealand, it was 72. Back to Auckland, sorry. It was 72. I immediately got involved with Takapuna Play Centre. And during the five years of between 72 and Georgia, the youngest, going to school in, in 79. Have I got my timings right here? I'm just stopping to think. Yes, Georgia was born in 72. In 77, she went off to school. And that was when I started the to think of, of writing a book because I'd had this flash on the night in, on one occasion. And what was the flash? <clears throat> well, the flash was that I was going to write a book about a family that goes sailing and gets into trouble and that was Night Race to Cover. Mm. And that hit me like a thunderbolt in, in would have been um, January of 1978. Yes. It was a year after Georgia had gone to school. Um, so in 1981, we went off to Malaysia yes. for a year. Yes. By that time, I had started work on Night Race to Cow, and I'd finished it just before I went away. And it was while we were away that Dorothy Butler wrote to me, because no emails in, of course, wrote to me and said, um, I've given you a book to Oxford University Press. And um, just they're but, interested. In but just before that happened, you had she had already printed a short story of yours. Yes, she had. had. Just, well, I'd started working on Night Race to Cow 
the week after I had this sudden inspiration. Don't ask me where it came from. Did you sail at that point? Was sailing oh, yes. something you did? We didn't have a boat. We couldn't afford a boat, but we had the loan of people's boats when they went overseas. Um, John had grown up on the family keeler, which was a yacht called Spray, which he now still has because he bought it back many years later. Mm. We hadn't done a lot of family sailing, not in the sense of a, um, a family that does this every opportunity, you know, every holiday. We did have the family batch up at Kawa, which we went up to quite a bit, but only after the grand, the grandparents, the children's grandparents, or John's parents who owned it, only after they had had their time there, we, we had to fit in around them. So you'd sail up there? No, no, mm-hmm. we wouldn't. No, we went on that ferry many times. And I did my boatmaster course mm-hmm. during all that because I thought, well, if I'm going to be halfway proficient on a boat and know what I'm talking about, if I'm writing writing books about sailing, I need to perhaps get a little bit proficient. I mean, boatmaster is very basic. It's not what it sounds. It's the lowest of the low qualifications, but it's worth having. Um, so, so have we got to the short story, the very first thing that was published by Dorothy Butler? What was the topic of that? It was called The Violin, and it was about a boy who is going to one of these Saturday morning classes, is given a little violin which he hates the sound of because he knows that his grandmother has got a beautiful vintage violin, and that's actually just about the true story behind it. Um, and so he he persuades his grandmother to let him learn on the proper violin rather than the school one. I mean, what happened was that that January I got this flash of inspiration that I was going to write this sailing book. About the same time, I started to write a couple of short stories, and I about six months into 1979, it would have been, or eight. 1978, it would have been. In the middle of the year, I went to see Dorothy Butler. She wrote about this in her autobiography how this young woman presented herself and asked asked her to look at this manuscript. I went to see her and said, look, I've written this book. Would you please give me a professional assessment of it? And she said, yes, it'll cost you $50, which was quite a bit yes. of money in those days, several hundred now. Mm. So I thought, yep, that's because I appreciate professional work, mm-hmm. being properly paid. I mean, it was probably small, but nevertheless, she read it. And I said, there's also this um, short story. And she said, well, I'm just putting together an anthology, so it would be nice to put it in that. And I'm, goodness me, here I am, you know, my first published short story. And it's a nice little story. But she wrote me a very wise and a very uh, honest report saying the book is not publishable as it is. You've spent 60,000 words telling me quite a lot of stuff I don't need to know. You've got to 30,000 words before you'd even got the family on the boat. Uh, You need to throw away a lot of stuff about preaching, about getting rid of waste and that sort of thing. Just tell the story. So I threw 60,000 words away and started again. And I've always been very grateful to Dorothy. I couldn't fault the the wisdom of what she told me. Well, if you didn't agree with her, you wouldn't have thrown it away and started again, would you? If she'd said, no, I'm sorry, you don't have any talent, I would have said, right, that's it, and I'd have stopped there and then. I didn't have that confidence. No, I didn't. I certainly didn't. And what she said was, she said, you're handling the family dynamics as masterly. I remember thinking that word, masterly. Goodness, how can I be masterly when I've just started? And... um, she said, yes, you do have talent. Throw that away. Take the pointers that I've given you and start again. And so I did. And even so, when I finally finished, um, towards the end of 81, I think it was, 
Uh, I get, she passed it on to Wendy Harricks at Oxford University mm -hmm. Press, who was just starting off this children's list with the support of AUP in England. And she'd just published Morris Jews Under the Mountain, and she was about to publish Gavin Bishop's first book. And she took me on, and she said, I absolutely hated your manuscript. I said, why? And she said, because it was overwritten. And she said, I, I lay on the beach and read it through that holiday. And she said, I hated it because I knew I was going to publish it, but it would take a lot of work. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> she said, I knew I had to publish it. So I'm enormously grateful to Wendy because she edited it with me, right. not for me. So she taught you what? So she taught me an awful editing. lot. Yeah. Yes. And she really did. And so it took about six months and... She started off, and then I went in, we talked about things, and then she'd do the next few chapters, and in the end, I was just about doing it myself. Um, so I, I owe her a huge debt, not only for accepting it, but also for going through that process. So from the beginning, in, in your first novel, would you agree that the hallmarks of your style were being established, that they're set in New Zealand, they have strong female characters who lead the plot, plus you... You're good at getting into the interior thoughts, uh, and, and they're dramatic. Alex, I structured quite carefully once I <clears throat> had decided to have those sections about the race in italics running through the book. Mm. I didn't know at the time that I'd actually created quite a classical structure for that book. It wasn't until I did the course that everybody in New Zealand went to in 1989, I think it was, Robert McKee, oh, yes. the Hollywood guru, script guru, came out to New Zealand and ran this three-day course, and I went to that and was first brought up face-to-face -face with this idea that there is a classical structure for storytelling because it wasn't, a, it wasn't there were no courses in those mm. days. And Robert McKee was a wonderful teacher, and, of course, he's written, he, he's written the Bible, mm. uh, that book called Story, which you mm. certainly know. But you have um, just done this intuitively. I'd done it intuitively. And I suppose that just comes from reading a huge amount over the years, you know, just being a constant reader. Mm -hmm. You do develop, I suppose, appreciation, even subconsciously, of, of, um, of structure. And I remember thinking, now, what I've got to do is to create... I've got to create obstacles. The reason I decided to put Andy's death at the beginning of November was that... It was the unfairness of it, really, that she'd sorted herself out. But here was something which over which she had no control. And the worst thing that had happened to her through a year, which had already been difficult. Mm. So, yes, I thought about it for about three weeks. And I thought, well, yes, I've got to do this because I've got to give her an obstacle that, for the reader, is going to make it even more unlikely that she's going to win. Although an eight-year-old boy once said to me, well, he said, if she didn't win that race, the book should have been called Maggie. <laughs> and that's very cute. Yes. Um, so I have a feeling, and I have no nothing to back this up except just speculation, really, that the reason that death has apparently made a lot of people cry at 2 o'clock in the morning, hundreds of people have told me that they've burst into tears. They mm. said, I've got a bone to pick with you. And I said, mm. excuse me? And they've said, well, we couldn't put the book down and, and we burst into tears when he died. I think the reason for that probably is its placement in the book. It's the timing. I didn't take it lightly. I tell you, I sat down and wrote all the, all those, probably those two chapters in one day and yeah. didn't change them much um, because a lot of work had gone on in the back of my head already. Yes. We know that happens. 
But I think it's a question of the structure of the book and the, the timing is probably pretty good. It's mm. probably perfect from that point of view. Mm. And so you the, did, you, when mm. I asked you about what is the book that flew mm. as a writing project, mm. you did say it was mm. this one. And so It what? only took me about eight months to write, but I had thought about it for five years because I remember the idea f first came to me to write a book about a swimmer who's overcommitted, has a goal and has a rival. Those are the three sort of themes on which which the book is based really I had thought about that I can remember again remember quite clearly the day that it happened I was sitting on my bed and having just come back from taking the girls to school and I suddenly thought yeah I could write a book about a, a swimmer because I know a lot about the culture mm. and I could place it in the time when mm. I was swimming mm. and I could make Rome as her as her goal but I hadn't written I'd written, when we got back from Malaysia, I wrote mostly, uh, well, three books actually, because Wendy Harrix asked me to do a book on Auckland, so I did that. During that year, 1985, I had three books published. The book on the spirit of adventure, which was a big glossy A4 thing, which I mostly wrote, with help from other people. Jelly Bean, which was my second novel for Oxford, and that was a, quite a short little book which required very little editing, funnily. I'd taken a few of Wendy's lessons on board. But I had thought about it for those five years. I'd written these three other books, and what happened was that I applied for a choice of bursary, which was then the only grant available to children's writers. Lindley Dodd had been the first recipient, and I think it was 1979. I applied six times before I, before right. I won it, and they were so quite... Six times over what time frame? Oh, yeah, every year I put an application in. And, of course, then I had three books to show for it. And my dear friend who just died recently, William Taylor, he won it the year before me. And I won that in 60, let me think, 86. No, it must have been 85, I think. You might have to check that. But that was the trigger that I sat down. It was a check for $7,000, which mm -hmm. they gave me an envelope with a piece of refill paper and a check will be mailed later. That's how they did things in those days, <laughs> um, in this little ceremony in Wellington. And I, so I, I started writing at that point because, you know, I'd won this, won this uh, bursary. And I was very lucky because Marion McLeod was one of the judges. And she's a well-known figure in the Wellington literary scene. And she wrote me a little note. No, she said, I just wanted to tell you how much we enjoyed reading the, um, the chapters that you've submitted for Night Race. To, no, sorry, for Alex, I'm getting muddled. We really enjoyed those, and I'm dying to read the rest of the book. And that meant a huge amount to me. Yeah, it was really one of the very first sort of affirmations that I had that, really? you know, that there was something, um, something that I could do well. I'd raced a car, I'd done reasonably well, but there were no awards in those days, mm -hmm. and it had reasonably good reviews. But mm -hmm. this is what gave you confidence getting this yeah, oh, well, yes, and the bursary itself, and of course. The, yes. I mean, yeah. but money never goes in mm. this, but. Well, it's not um, just the money, is it? It's no, the no. Institutionally it's the institution and the, yes, the boost of confidence mm. is huge, absolutely huge. So, yes, I sat down, the actual writing only took me about eight months. From that, you went on and wrote th three more about Alex, mm -hmm. a, a quartet. Yeah, well, what happened was that <clears throat> I went on holiday at the end of that year. That it was published in September 87. I took the girls around the South Island and this voice started to talk to me. 
you know, what happened to me next, Mrs. Mulu, you know? <laughs> so I decided I'd have to write her story through the build-up to Rome. The next one was Alex and Winter. Alex and Winter, yes. Now, that was not accepted by the American publishers who had accepted Alex. They felt that the build-up in Alex had been to her going to Rome, and that's what they expected to read about. But they did take the third one. My friend William Taylor, who was a very close friend of mine, he he said that he, he thought that Alex and Winter was the best of them. He, he loved that book for whatever mm. reason, because it's really a book about a, a, a winter of preparation. Mm. And I sort of decided to do that because I wanted to show how the sorts of ordeals and problems that supposedly successful sports people yeah. you see on the television or this is pre-television but of course mm. you know just what it takes and they might be psychological it might be the sheer problem of not having a, a proper pool to train in or one which made your eyes feel like burning coals within five minutes of being in the water two minutes of being in the water um, these things are not achieved lightly um, the English did they published it in England mm -hmm. and when I came to write the third and fourth one, I wanted to do it as a single big book, bigger book. But the publishers didn't like that idea. They wanted to milk it, I think, for two more books. So that's how Which publisher are you talking about now? Oxford. Mm -hmm. um, which was... Um, and French was by this time the, the uh, publisher there. Yes. I didn't have anything like the relationship with Anne that I had with Wendy Harrix. I can say that. It was quite fraught at times. Um, With Anne? Yes, so the question of the film rights came up because okay. by this time um, we were in heavy discussions with... I can't even remember the name of the... because they changed so much, but right. we were talking about um, a film. By 89, I was working with Judy Callingham and ooh, another well-known television script developer. Mm -hmm. I'd been to a course in with Fiona Kidman ran in Wellington. And we were headed for a three-part television series. And then in 88, I think it was, 89, TVNZ closed its drama department. And Morris G's The Champion continued to get made because they were too far down that track, mm -hmm. but they dropped Alex at that point. And by this time, we'd spent three or four years developing a script. I'd been involved all the way through. Yeah. I wasn't the script writer, but I was certainly involved. About 90, 1990, I suppose, Tom Parkinson picked it up and decided that Eisenbard Productions would would make the film. By this time, it was a film. Ken Catron had been bought, bought on board by Tom mm -hmm. as a film, as the scriptwriter, without asking me. I wasn't entirely happy with that. This was his first feature film, and he was a man. Now, I didn't think mm -hmm. he was right for the for the project, However, it was not discussed with me, so I was brought on board for a very small sum of money to be the script consultant. Mm -hmm. So I provided Ken with a lot of historical stuff, like you know, the protocols of swimming in 1960 as opposed to 1990, mm -hmm. um, and I enjoyed doing that. And so, was that the film you had hoped for? No. Um, we hoped it would do better in America than it did. Um, Tom's great hope was that it would be picked up by cable television in America because they have this genre. Sixteen Candles was a very good example. They have this genre of sort of teenage aspirational films. Mm -hmm. There have been some about ice dancing, which have been absolutely wonderful. And um, I think he hoped 
that it would do better than it did. It was described to me as a nice wee film by a television New Zealand executive, which... That's a put-down, It's it? a put-down, but it's actually quite accurate. It is a nice wee film. I watched it again with my grandson the other night. Mm-hmm. I worked very well with Ken, and I, I admire him greatly as a scriptwriter, and after that he became an author because he could see the writing on the wall that the, script, the series for children uh, were not going to be made in such numbers, and he became a very good novelist. But I think that looking back, some of the dialogue is pretty clunky. And I think that there were aspects of the film which didn't quite work. Um, It was a very young director. She was only 26. And when people have asked me this question over the years, I've usually skirted it slightly by saying, well, the film got made. And most film projects, probably one out of 20, doesn't go through to actually getting made. They can't raise the money. The chemistry isn't right between people, whatever, but they just don't eventuate. Alex did get made. It was certainly a boost to the film, uh, to the book. Lovely young woman who was chosen to play the part of Alex, and I still see her from time to time. She was only 15 at the time, and I did have a say in the casting of her. Did you make a lot of money from Alex with it selling to all those territories? No. Why not? Authors don't. No. I just thought maybe when it's uh, what I made, the $30,000 for the film rights was some went to the, I think I, my lump sum at the end of the day was about 21 by the time the publisher's share and the agent's share had come off. I think I, and I, with that I bought an Alfa Romeo. Um, oh. But no, I never saw very much money for the, uh, for the translated versions at all. Um, that doesn't seem to be, unless you're Lee Child or somebody, you know, in the airport global bracket, <clears throat> of which there are probably not all that many, maybe less than 200. The rest of us, yes, if we're lucky, we see these books um, translated. Somebody like Margaret Mahi, who had so many of them, and she had an agent in England working for her, very hard actually. She had a wonderful agent then. Vanessa Hamilton, um, who really sort of shaped Margaret's career yes. in England, particularly her glory years, which were 1969. Uh, 1969. Yeah, she was first published picture books. But from then through to about 2000, though, those were her glory years, those, mm. those years, and Vanessa did extraordinarily well. Mm. So it would have been a build-up for her, and the same with Joy Carley. Um, But for the rest of us, we don't see huge amounts of money for apparently these quite glamorous achievements. No, it just doesn't happen. Something that struck me before you talked about writing the book about Auckland and the one about spirit of adventure in the midst of starting out as a novelist. And a number of writers would write in one genre, not not crossover. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking, but because you were a journalist, it makes absolute sense that non-fiction, you're comfortable in that. Um, but you seem to be able to move between the two very easily. Don't know about easily. No? <laughs> no. Which is more challenging? Well, in a funny... I mean, non-fiction has to be because you've got to try and make sure that all your facts are right, your basic simple facts. And things like when I was doing the Sarah Matthew book, I wrote the word Narahoe. Now, I've always spelt, thought it was spelt with an A in the middle, but it's not. It's a U. Mm. And I just noticed this in the late stage of, of editing, and I thought, I 
wonder if that's right. So I went and checked it, and yes, this, uh, the way I'd spelt it all my life was wrong. Yeah. And of course, that's the sort of thing reviewers love. They will pick up on page 153 mm. that, you know, she doesn't know how to spell Natahoe correctly. And I'm thinking, those are the sorts of things mm. I want to try and avoid. But I've always felt that fiction should ring true and that anybody who is an expert in whatever you're writing about should also agree that it rings true. Right. That's been quite a basic tenet of mine for a long time. So I've done a lot of probably more research than other writers might do. Um, now I want to ask mm. you this thing about fiction being autobiographical. And I know mm -hmm. Owen Marshall said to me, all experience is copy for the writer. Yeah, and absolutely. Oh, absolutely. But mm. the Alex, do you think that that did so well because it... Although you've added a lot in and you've changed things, but it really did a lot of it spring from your personal mm. experience. Oh, yes, it would have. Um, I mean, I knew the culture of, of the sport at that time, inside out. I bristle when people says it's semi-autobiographical, but that's an assumption which I don't think people have any right to make, actually. And they mightn't quite know what they, what they mean by Well, that, they though. look at the facts. You know, I was a mm. swimmer. I went didn't go to the Rome Olympics, but I was swimming about that time. They assume that what they read in the book is therefore going to, if they take just a few flags mm. and they assume that the rest is... It all happened to okay, you. And I'm the only person who knows. Um, and most of the things that actually happened to Alex did not happen to me. I didn't have a rival like Maggie. I didn't break my leg. I didn't have a breakdown on stage. I didn't have a, a boyfriend who was killed or even a close friend who was killed when I was a um, teenager. I didn't grow up in a big family like she does. There were three in mm. her family. Mm. So a lot of it was invented, all borrowed from other people's stories. But it was described in one, that great fat book called A Thousand Books, uh, children's books you must read before you die, that great big English publication. It's about this high. The Australian in there said that it was a autobiographical novel, and I really bristled at that. I remember Witty Himara once said to me, he said, I hate it when people say that which they have about, particularly Nights in the Garden mm -hmm. of Spain, um, he said that that's really quite an arrogant assumption. He said that somehow people say that because it makes them feel slightly comfortable that you can recount that as having happened to you and put it in the guise of fiction, or you must be really clever if you make that up. And it's almost a put-down in the sense they cannot believe that people can create something that feels so real and yet hasn't been. And I think he's absolutely right. I think people do tend to sort of try and cut it down. Reduce it. Reduce it that. because they feel more comfortable with that. And, and I've always... But the other bristled. way around of this mm -hmm. argument is that when it is, when it springs from your truth, your personal experience of hardness, mm -hmm. harshness and mm -hmm. challenge then I think it's going to, it, it resonates more with the well, reader. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what, one of the things that people have said, that the book is extremely honest and uh, I suppose... And teenagers. I am probably, I would it. describe myself as a reasonably honest person. And I think that that's just the way I look at life, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I'm a dissembler in real life. There was something that you wrote in... Um, 
Question of Endurance, your um, memoir piece for Through the Looking Glass, oh, yes. mm. uh, which I think it applies to your writing and it applies to yeah. Margaret's. I'm going to mm. read it. Mm. I think all children's writers retain in some degree the child's capacity for simple wonder, her sense of the ridiculous and penchant penchant for vulgarity, her trust in other people's integrity, her acceptance of people as they are, her endless capacity for forgiveness, her honesty. In this clinical aggressive world, these are not fashionable fashionable values, but they are the ones I was taught Mm. and to which I have tried to hold true. This brings us into a discussion of how New Zealand, how children's literature is is and has been regarded. Mm. Um, It's been an issue, hasn't it? It's still an issue. It still is. Yeah. Um, That somehow because it's for children, it's not as important or significant. And also this awful assumption too that it's easier to write Mm -hmm. because it's for children. Mm -hmm. It's actually harder. (laughs) Yes. So just, do you want to say something about that? Yes, well, I've read quite a bit about this over the years, and I gather it sort of goes back almost to Henry James and some of those English writers who possibly were beginning to realise that this genre of children's writing was requiring a respectability and an importance that they felt challenged by. And so the best way to deal with that is to put it down or ignore it. And I think that's what happened here with those writers of the 1930s like Alan Kernow and Dennis Glover and all that crowd. Um, they not only put children's writers down, but such as they were, but they put the women down very aggressively, as well. I think we now know. I think by the time we got to when I started in 1980, which was, for me, the time of explosion of children's writers here, and I have always believed that it started in 1979 with Under the Mountain. And the recent biography of Morris G., I think, shortchanges Morris because it's clear that the writer didn't talk to anybody who has an historical approach of New Zealand children's literature. But certainly I would have said, had Rachel asked the question, Rachel Barriman, what was the importance of Under the Mountain? I would have said, well, that was the book which triggered an entire explosion of children's books. It wasn't a renaissance because there was nothing to be reborn. In 1979, Under the Mountain was something completely new and Thanks to Wendy Herricks, Gavin Bishop soon followed, and I soon followed. So we were the sort of torchbearers of that explosion which happened from 1980 onwards, uh, from under the mountain onwards. There was a whole new awareness that New Zealand children needed to read books about New Zealand. By and large, there wasn't a body of work. There were there were the ones that Betty Gilderay had written about, but there wasn't a body. And, of course, Margaret had already been publishing in England and America, but she was not being promoted here by her publishers here because they don't didn't see the responsibility for that. She was, as far as they were concerned, she was being published overseas. Um, so she wasn't as well known here as she should have been mm-hmm. as a New Zealand writer. She just happened to live here. We're not that good at it, are we, at recognising no, the, we're not. the talents in our lives? We, have always, we still look overseas. Oh, yes, we do, yeah. But David Hill had started at that point. William Taylor had started at that mm-hmm. point. Jack Lazenby had started then. Um, Joy Carley. Joy Carley. Um, there was this group coming forward with books which somebody has written that 
if the most successful children's writers are of nothing else, they are fine stylists. Uh, they're very good writers. You've been listening to an interview from 2015 from Tessa Duda and Deborah Shepherd on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. Tessa and Deborah had much more to discuss, especially about Tessa's political and advocacy work on behalf of authors. So make sure you join us next time for part two of her interview. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.